this morning. God, we are so grateful that you have invited us to come into your presence. That because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, we are able to come and have a seat. God, we are so grateful that you love us so infinitely. That you have provided forgiveness for all of our sins, past, present, and future. That you have reconciled our relationship with you so we can come and address you as our loving Heavenly Father. And so, Lord, today we come into your presence as your children, and we come in great need. We come in great need of a fresh vision for the life that you're calling us to. We come in great need today of of hope and strength and courage for maybe the week that's coming up ahead of us. We come in fresh need today for forgiveness, for some healing work to happen in our hearts, And Lord, for you to remind us again today that we matter because we're your children. No matter what we've done, no matter what we've been through, God, we matter today because of you. And Lord, this morning, we just thank you for the chance that we have to gather together as your people. We have the privilege this week to to declare the the name of Jesus Christ to a whole generation of children Uh, some of whom will come and hear your name spoken for the very first time in their lives. Lord, we recognize today that there's many challenges in our city, there's many challenges in our world, and that you have called us to to be active and, and, and be about your business in the world today. So we pray today for our city in particular. We pray for you to be moving in the lives of people. We pray for the churches of our city today, that you would unite us together, that we would be about your kingdom work. We think of those, uh, that young soccer team in Thailand, that even as we speak right now, there are brave men and women who are um, working on their behalf to bring them rescue. We would pray for, that no lives would be lost. And Lord, today we just pray that you would move and speak to our hearts. Lord, that you would have a word for us today. And that maybe if we came here broken, maybe if we came here tired, maybe if we came here even just wondering if you would love somebody like us that in the midst of this service today, that God, you would speak and move in our hearts. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Imagine for a second you've got two job offers. Job offer number one comes with a salary of half a million dollars and many perks. With this job offer, you have support admin staff. They make all of your photocopies. Uh, They get you food for your very stressful 30 hours a week. It comes with a driver. It comes with a meal allowance. It comes with all kinds of perks and benefits. It also comes with your name on the wall and the chance that you're going to become famous. The people, when they hear your name, are going to know that you are an important person. There's another offer for you. Um, it comes with a modest salary. Uh, most of the people on your street will have a nicer car than you. In this job, you'll have to do your own photocopying and answer your own phone and kind of look after all of your needs. You'll work 60 hours a week in the office, but then you'll do another 20, uh, either early in the morning or late at night, just trying to stay caught up with this job. In this job, no one will know who you are. You'll work in just about obscurity, What would make you take offer number two? What would be required for you to take offer number two? 
I'm going to tell you today about a story about someone who takes offer number two. We're in a series, our summer series called Inspired, and we're looking at the stories of people who put their lives into God's hands, and God wrote an inspirational story through their life. The word inspired paints a picture for us, like a breath of fresh air that brings new life. You've had this experience. You've met somebody who's inspired you. And after you left or heard about them or watched their documentary, you were inspired, but you were inspired to do something. You were inspired. You were motivated towards action. When I hear stories of people who walk away from comfort and wealth to do something that's really hard, it always catches my attention. Now, I'm not talking about John Chaveris, who only took $77 million to play for the Leafs when he could have made more somewhere else. We're not talking about that kind of sacrifice. Right, Delbert? He's going to give me a big amen here. I'm talking about people who forego comfort, fame, and wealth to do something that really matters in the world. I love the stories about those people who chose to work in circumstances that, where they're under-resourced, where it's difficult, where it's dangerous, where the obstacles are overwhelming and they're dealing with a problem that everybody has just been too scared to deal with. When they could have had a much different life, but they walked away from it all. These kind of people really and truly inspire me. And I'm going to share uh, one of their stories with you this morning. It's my privilege today to introduce you to Mr. Brian Stevenson. Uh, Brian was born in 1959. He's a human rights lawyer located in Montgomery, Alabama. He's the founder of the Equal Justice Initiative, which devotes most of its time to defending those on death row whom they believe did not get a fair trial because of the color of their skin. He has a passion to help change the racial divide in all of North America, including Canada and including St. John. The first time I ever heard of Brian, he made a very controversial statement shortly after 9-11. He took the time to remind white people that 9-11 was not the first time that terrorism had touched North American soil, but that lynchings and slavery system that plagued the 18 and 1900s were also a form of terrorism. When he made that statement, he got people's attention. He has a TED Talk that's got over 5 million views. He's got a book that's in our church uh, library here called Just mercy. And there's three events that shaped Brian's life that I want to share with you about this morning. The first was growing up in school. He went to an all-black school. He was not allowed to go to the white school, the school that had uh, better qualified teachers, that had amenities and after-school programs and resources. He was not allowed to go there because of the color of his skin. And sadly, when Stevenson went to school, he thought he was doing great because his dad was not allowed to go to school at all because of the color of his skin. This experience deeply shaped how he viewed the world. Not in a way that made him angry or hateful, but in a way that motivated him to see change come. The second event that shaped his life was his grandmother, his relationship with his grandmother. Because it was here that he learned a sense of identity and who he was. She was the daughter of slaves brought into Virginia and had a fierce determination to help her grandkids grow up with a sense of identity. He tells the story from when he was nine years old and the grandkids were all in the living room running around and his grandmother caught his eye across the room and she kept his stare. And she called him out onto the porch and she said to him, Brian, keeping his, keeping his stare you know that you're special, don't you? 
And he replied, yes. And she said, no, no, no. You know that you're special, don't you? And then she said to him, I want you to make me three promises in your life. Number one, you will always love your mother. Number two, you will do what's right even when it's difficult. And number three, you will never touch alcohol as long as you live because alcohol had destroyed some lives in their family. So he said, I will. He tells the story that years later, he was out with his brother. They were out celebrating with all of the siblings. And uh, his brother decided it's a a celebration, so I'm going to order beers for everybody. And he ordered one for Brian, and Brian said, no, thank you. He said, come on, Brian, we're celebrating. This is a special occasion. Just have one beer. And Brian said, no, thank you. And then his older brother clued in, and he realized, he said, Brian, you realize that Grandma had that same conversation with all of us kids, don't you? (laughs) But this sense of identity, that he had value in a day when other people didn't value him, that he could do something good, was imprinted on his soul. The third moment in his life, and we're going to watch a video on this one, um, is a story that he tells, and I'll, uh, we'll, we'll show it on the, on the screen here and watch this story. As he's entering into his career as a lawyer, and he has this great opportunity to work and make all kinds of money and become very influential in the crisis point that he hits. We'll watch it now. School of Government at Harvard. I... Not going to work. There we go. There he is. Thanks, Pat. I appreciate this. Decided to, to pursue a degree in public policy. And I woke up after I'd been there a couple of months one day, and I was looking in the mirror, and I thought to myself, wow, I'm even more miserable here than I was at the law school. <laughs> they were teaching us to maximize benefits and minimize costs, but it didn't seem to matter whose benefits got maximized and whose costs got minimized. I went back to the law school, and then I was about to do this thing, I pray none of you ever do. I was about to do this thing where I was trying to persuade myself to accept a career as a lawyer that I knew was not going to be affirming, that I knew was not going to be energizing, that I knew was not what I was called to. And then I got proximate. I took a course that required me to spend time with a human rights organization in Georgia, and I went down and I met these lawyers providing legal services to people on death row. And there was a community of people there, and I was energized by what I saw. And I'd been there a week, and one of the lawyers said, we need you to go to death row and meet someone we haven't had time to meet. We just just need you to go down and explain to him that he's not at risk of execution anytime in the next year. I drove down there the next day, and I was very nervous because I was persuaded that this man wouldn't want to just see a law student. I tried to rehearse exactly what I was going to say, and I went into the prison. They took me to the cell, and I was pacing back and forth, really nervous, really anxious, and finally they opened the door, and there stood the first condemned prisoner I'd ever seen. And what struck me about him was how burdened with chains he was. He had handcuffs on his wrists. He had a chain around his waist. He had shackles on his ankles, and I stood there while they unchained him, and I got so nervous that by the time he walked inside, I'd forgotten what I was supposed to say, and I just said, I'm so sorry. I'm just a law student. I don't know anything about the death penalty. I don't know anything about civil procedure. I don't know anything about criminal procedure. I don't know anything about appellate procedure. Oh, but they sent me down here to tell you that you're not at risk of execution anytime in the next year. And as soon as I said that, the man said, wait, 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 say that again. I said, you're not at risk of execution anytime in the next year. And the man said, wait, 
wait, say that again. I said, you're not at risk of execution any time in the next year. And that's when this man grabbed my hand. He said, thank you, thank you, thank you. He said, you're the first person I've met who's not a death row prisoner or a death row guard in the two years I've been on death row. He said, I've been talking to my wife and my kids at night, but I haven't let them come and visit because I was afraid I'd have an execution date and I didn't want them to have to deal with that. He said, now because of you, I'm going to see my wife. I'm going to see my kids. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And I couldn't believe how even in my ignorance, how just being proximate could be transformative in the life of someone else. But all of a sudden it kicked in and we started talking, this man and me, and it turned out we were exactly the same age. We had the same birthday, same month, same day, same year. He started asking me questions about my life. I asked him questions about his life and we fell into this conversation. And one hour turned into two hours and two hours turned into three hours. I'd only scheduled to be there an hour and the guards were getting angry waiting outside the room. And finally, after three hours, they couldn't take it any longer. So they came bursting into the room and they were frustrated. And they couldn't do anything to me. So they took it out on this man. They threw him against the wall. And they began putting the chains on him very roughly. I tried to get them to be gentler, but they ignored me. And they put the handcuffs on his wrist so tightly I could see him grimacing with pain. They wrapped the chain around his waist so tightly. I said, please, it's not his fault. It's my fault. Don't take it out on him. But they ignored me. And then they put the shackles on his ankles so tight you could see him struggling. And I I was really stressed by this. And this condemned man looked at me and he said, Brian, don't worry about this. You just come back. And then they started shoving this man toward the door. He almost fell down. He kept his balance and he kept pushing him so roughly and they got him in front of the door and then I watched this man do something. He planted his feet and the next time when they shoved him, he didn't move. And then this man turned to me and he looked at me and he said, Brian, don't worry about this. You just come back. And then that man did something I've never forgotten. I stood there and I watched him close his eyes, throw his head back, and then he started to sing. And he started singing this hymn. He started singing, I'm pressing on the upward way. New heights I'm gaining every day, still praying as I'm onward bound. And then he said, Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. Everybody stopped. The guards recovered. They started pushing him down the hallway. You could hear the chains clanging, but you could hear this man singing about higher ground. And I will tell you, hearing that man's song changed me. All of a sudden, I knew I wanted to help condemn people get to higher ground. But more than that, I knew that my journey to higher ground was tied to his journey. I realized that if he doesn't get there, I can't get there. And in an instant, my interest in law was radicalized. That was his calling. It's when the Lord communicated to him that he could walk away from the wealth and the prestige and the comfort and pursue this calling that God had put on his life. Helping people created in God's image receive justice. Not to be let off the hook, not to be treated easier, but to be treated equally. Now, Stevenson's materials, if you read any of them, you'll always find yourself taken to the ancient Old Testament prophets, in particular, the book of Amos, chapter 5. So I'm going to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Amos, chapter 5, and we're going to read starting at verse 18. It's on page 1426 of the Red Bibles, 1426. But you have to understand the context for these words that Amos writes before I read them, because they're tough words. In his time, in Amos' time, everything in God's community seemed to be going great. The economy was booming, job reports were up, the churches were full, Easter and Christmas' services were hopping. All the metrics were pointing to a picture of success. God's people were enjoying an unprecedented time of influence and affluence, and they were enjoying it. 
It seemed like all the years of wandering in the wilderness and being dragged off to exile were now behind them. And that God had brought them into this great season. But it only looked like that for them. The truth was God's people who had been called to be a river of blessing had turned into a lagoon of blessing. And as God had been good to them, he stopped passing, they stopped passing the blessings on. They became blessing hoarders. And the truth is they knew better. God's people had been called from the very get-go to be a vehicle of blessing to the world. The scriptures taught them this right from the beginning. Because in the ancient world, there was no social development, there was no outflow, there were no food banks, there was no YMCA. If you needed help, you were at the mercy of the kindness of your neighbors. And God's people had become selfish neighbors. And so what does God do? He sends them a humble farmer to go and visit these wealthy Jewish people and to preach a message of doom to them, that if they do not return to practicing justice, they're going to lose it all. Let's look at it. Amos chapter 5, starting, starting at verse 18. It talks about the day of the Lord. Um, and the day of the Lord is a term that refers to that day when God's going to come back. And for these people, they thought, look, we're so awesome. We're doing so great. The church is full. Everybody's happy. So when God comes back, He's going to be so happy to see us. I mean, he's probably going to fall down and worship us because we are just so, so great. This was what they expected. And this is what Amos told them. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? It will be a day of darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear, as though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness and not light? Pitch dark without a ray of brightness. And listen to what he says. This is not directed to kind of pagan uh, outside of the church people. This is directed to the people sitting in the pews. He wrote this. I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies, your worship times. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings... I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. And then look at verse 24. But let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. Three different times, three different ways, the Lord says this. Look, sing all you like. I'm not listening. Fill the offering plates with cash. I'm not answering your prayers. Jump around and dance and swing from the rafters. I'm not impressed. And then come those powerful words, the words that inspired so many Christians through the ages. Mother Teresa, Martin Luther King, Brian Stevenson, this image of justice rolling on through the streets like a river. Justice can be defined as making individuals, communities, and a world whole by the practicing of goodness and fairness by God's people. This is the image of, of shalom that we've talked about so many times. To practice justice is to participating in God's redemption of all things, of his putting the world back together again. And we were built for justice. You are hardwired for justice. 
Imagine for a second if you worked really hard and went out and bought yourself a $500 bike. And you uh, saved money for it. Uh, it was your way to and from your job. On the weekends, it was your social outlet. You went biking with friends, and it gets stolen. And now you have to go to the store and buy another $500 bike. And then someone comes to you and says, hey, we found your bike, and we told the person that stole it, no worries, you're good to go, see you later. <laughs> Something inside of you would rise up and say, no. I was wronged, and it needs to be righted. Someone needs to pay for doing that offense to me. And for the people of God in the time of Amos, God was saying, you've been sitting around while people's bikes are being stolen and done nothing about it. But in fact, it was worse than that. You've been stealing people's bikes. You've been participating in the wrongs of society. This passion for justice is at the heart of the gospel. Through our sinful behavior, we have wronged God. We have ignored God. We have pushed him to the side. We have tried to be God. And because of our sin, because of the way we have wronged God, there needs to be justice. There's been a wrong, and it needs to be righted. There needs to be a payment for the wrong that has been committed. And the great news of the gospel is that Jesus pays that on our behalf. Justice and the gospel are connected. And when we practice justice, it opens doors for the gospel to be heard in people's lives that have never heard it before. Imagine if Brian Stevenson was able to go back to that man on death row and kind of give him a gospel invitation message. Imagine if he decided to share the gospel of a God who loves us no matter our condition, who sends his son to absorb their sin and pours out on them mercy and grace. Imagine if he explained to him the story of the prodigal son, his father waiting for the lost child to return home that message would have made sense to that prisoner because he'd seen it displayed in the justice initiative of Stevenson's life. Our work for justice is an expression of the love of God that tells people how God really feels about them, that they matter, that they were created in his image and that God is pursuing them and wants what's right for them. When we practice justice, it's our way of saying there's coming a day when the Lord's going to set things right. And it starts today. Friends, this is not just about nice people doing nice things. We are demonstrating the heart and posture of God towards all people when we practice justice. That's why we're so uh, pleased to be welcoming a new refugee family that's going to arrive uh, this Thursday. This is a picture of their apartment. It's all set up. Uh, some folks from our church have been working really hard to get all that ready, and we thank those of you who've kind of made contributions towards that end to help, help that out. Because, you know, you were a spiritual refugee once, too. You know that, don't you? You were once lost and poor and broken and homeless, spiritually speaking. And the Lord set the table and invited you into his family. When we welcome this family on Thursday, we are practicing that welcome, that gospel welcome to them that declares what God is like and how he feels about this people. This is justice. And God says, imagine a day when it just rolls to the streets, bringing life to everything that it touches. Now, 
Stevenson, in all of his writings, kind of would push us in, in three different ways to practice justice, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on these this morning, but I just want to get you thinking a little bit. The first one he already mentioned in the video clip, which is get proximate or get close to people. You can't practice justice from a distance. You have to get close to people. You have to get to know their story. And when you do this, you will realize that the stereotypes that we have about people who might be different than us, they fall to the ground. My wife and her mom are excellent examples of this. They've been working with the inner city poor their whole lives. It was new to me, and I remember picking Jill up from her resource center job one day uh, where she was working, and right next to it, there was a soup kitchen. And folks were lining up to get their lunch at this soup kitchen, and she was bringing me over to introduce me to this lady, and I was very uncomfortable. Um, to be honest, I just wanted to leave, and I did not want to kind of meet anybody. I didn't know what I was going to say. I was just looking to get safe and to have some distance. And I remember Jill introducing me to this lady and telling me that she used to be a high school teacher. She'd had a mental breakdown and had a number of difficult things happen in her life, and now she's standing in line at the soup kitchen. Stereotypes fall to the ground when you get close to people. The other call that Stevenson and I think the Gospels would call us to is that we have to be a witness in hopeless places. We've got to be a witness in hopeless places. This, is the, this verse in Amos paints a picture of a river where the river flows, life abounds. Things come back to life. They get renewed. There's transformation. There's change. Some of you are wishing right now that I would stop preaching so you could get out onto the river. Is that not right? Right? You've got plans. The boat's waiting. Hang in there. We've got till noon. We usually do this thing till noon, so we've got another hour. No. <laughs> the first Christians had a reputation for going places no one else would go, for caring for people that no one else cared for, for loving people that everybody else had written off. There's stories that a pandemic would break out in the first century, and everybody would flee for their safety. It would be the Christians who would stay behind and care for those who were sick or could not leave and would stay there with them until they died. Many of the Christians dying themselves because they became sick. Justice begs us to ask the question, who are the people in my world that no one else cares about? That everybody is written off. That no one loves. That's on nobody's radar. Those are the people that God wants them to know. He loves them. And the way they will know that is when his people start practicing and posturing themselves with justice in their lives. Finally, we need to do and listen to Stevenson grandmother. Always a good word to listen to your grandmother. And remember that doing justice means doing the right thing even when it's hard. You cannot practice justice and have it easy. It's impossible. Our world is broken and sinful, and it's going to take courageous people to practice justice, both in small and big ways. Where are the people in your world who are being treated poorly? Who are they? Maybe it's in your workplace. Comments that get made to people. People get excluded. Maybe it's because they're poor. Maybe it's because of their ethnicity. Maybe it's because of their sexual orientation. Maybe they have a disability or something, but they get treated less than because of who they are. Maybe it's a sexist comment. Maybe it's a racist jo joke that's being told. Each of these things is an opportunity for us to say, no, 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 no. No. Justice is going to roll through this workplace, and we are going to give witness to God's just heart towards these people. 
Now, let me tell you, you don't need to pray about this. You don't even need to open up your Bible and look for a verse that says you have to do this. From beginning to the end of Scripture, God is calling us to be a witness to justice. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up as we conclude here this morning. I have read just about everything that Stevenson has written. I've watched most of his sermons that he's given. You can watch them on on YouTube if you like. And he always fills me with fresh air to do the right thing. He inspires me to live a life that sticks up for people that everybody else has thrown to the curb. Not out of guilt, not to be angry and miserable about it. It's about helping God see the right thing Helping people see that God loves them and doing the right thing by being a demonstration of the kingdom, by being a demonstration of the gospel in their lives, no matter how difficult it is. So my hope for you today is when you find yourself in a situation where you think, you know what, this isn't right. Someone needs to stick up for this person. Someone needs to do the right thing in this moment that you will be inspired by this Amos vision. Let me pray for you. God, today we are challenged by this word because it is hard. And because we live in a world that's broken. We live in a world that pushes people aside because of how much money they have or the color of their skin. And God, we know that in your economy that is not right. So we pray that we would be a demonstration of your kingdom love and your kingdom heart towards those people. God, we pray that you would burden us in situations to do the right thing. We thank you so much that we get to represent you. We thank you so much for the day that's going to come when everything will be set right and all the brokenness of this world will be put back together once and for all under Jesus.